Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. What if there were no such thing as a negative emotion? What would happen if you related to yourself and others in this way every moment of every day? This is the realization we explore today, including the difference between homeopathic and allopathic relationships to emotion, the dangers of transcendence, always a interesting topic, how every negative feeling emotion is actually a cry for help, and a word from a new sponsor for your entertainment. Thanks so much for listening. Greetings and welcome forward, everybody. Hello, Stace. Thanks for being here, as always. You betcha. Uh, always a pleasure. Yeah, it really is. It's a it's a highlight of my week. I'm so glad we get to do these. And um, yeah, and sometimes really helpful when I go back and edit them and listen to. It's a different experience doing it, being in it versus listening to it. It's a whole different thing. Oh, so, I, wow. I never thought of that. That's right. You must you have to go through it. Uh, in some, not totally, but you've got to revisit it every time afterwards. Yeah, I try to take notes during, but then that can be too noisy in the recording. But if I don't take any notes after, then I have no memory of what we talked about at all. <laughs> and then I got to skip around and try to reconstruct it. So I try to take enough notes to write an intro. But um, yeah, I haven't listened to an entire one yet. That would probably be a good challenge. But uh, we're talking about uh, the uh, new realization uh, today, um, which is there's no such thing as a negative emotion, which is, of course, the title of your second book. Yes. Remember that, right? right. There's no such thing as a negative emotion, which then the structure of that book, if I recall correctly, was at least nine subprint. No, no, that was one of the premises that the book was based around, right? Yes, it was actually 13 premises that that um, uh, comprise the uh, dharmic skeleton, as it were, assumptions, that if those assumptions, uh, I wanted to be really clear right up front about the metaphysical spine of a spiritual personhood work, since it's such a new hybrid that's not been offered before, at least in our version of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so by reading this, if you have any, if a person, a reader, finds any just any of these assumptions uh, that the whole that the theoreticals are based on then they then this work isn't for them and i want people to get that up front so there's no surprises here are the assumptions the metaphysics upon which all the opinions all the all the dharma and all the results we expect to um, help people heal into uh, all right up front. You don't have to think about it. Here are the, here are the 13 assumptions. Don't have to find out later. Well, I think of like in, in Scientology where um, the origin story yeah. of Xenu and the yes. souls, right. all of that, none of that was revealed until you were at like super high levels and then it got out. And so <laughs> yeah. it, what I find really kind of, of tragically um, sad slash um, hilariously amusing, depending on uh, where I mm-hmm. go in my experience, is how the presentation of the values and principles and um, first principles, you know, like the indivisible premises and assumptions of identity are all totally transparent and completely upfront. And that yes. mostly rubs people the wrong way. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> the irony of that is because the intent was exactly the opposite. Here it is, so you don't waste your time with it if you don't relate to it, the assumptions, right? Yeah, but instead people are like, oh, you're telling me how to think. But it's like, <laughs> which would you rather have? Would you want to do 20 years of therapy? Or, or how about, do you want to do 20 years of transcendental meditation? And, right. you know, until you finally realize the metaphysic is there's no essential you and we actually don't give a shit at all about you as an individual. It's only about your drop returning to the ocean. Do you want to find that out before or in the yes. middle or at the end? <laughs> but because our conditioning is that the, right. the, the metaphysical assumptions of a paradigm um, you know, like think of like Sunday school, you know, where the, the number of kids who are raised in, yeah. they're given the content of it and not the paradigmatic assumptions. So yes. then we project our very relationship to paradigms as adults and yes. assume, well, the paradigmatic assumptions, like that's not for the everyday person to know about. Right. Because as right. children, nobody gives that to us, but that's exactly right. what we should have as yes. adults anyway. Oh yeah, and, and that's that's this connects to something we've been talking a bit about in the in the last few um, podcasts. Is this is the book that I sent to a publisher that said, absolutely, <laughs> I will publish this if you just say this was um, channeled by a, a, a non physical entity because it was so it was so precisely evocative. And, and in a summary way, offered with heart and soul to people, uh, it just it seemed to transcend to this publisher, uh, the human theater. Uh, plus, he saw dollar signs because it was that was back in the late '80s and early '90s when channeling was really hot. Yeah, I mean, so. and think about the, the paradigmatic affront that that was. The only way we can sell this is if yes. it's not yours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how could you possibly say yes to that? You know? Yes, but, but and the the double irony is that the hand inside that glove, you know, this is not yours. Is this is so amazing? It yeah. had to be channeled. Right. So you've got this weird hand in the glove thing yeah. that. I really tried to feel into it because I went through. I, I can't. I can't really say I was seduced, but I really did do a, a neutral kind of assay of it. Well, yeah. wouldn't that if that that could just get the information out to yeah. the world? Yep. Here's the world's um, paradigm where things are hot right now. So, do I, can I take advantage of that? And well, there were all sorts of strategic thoughts, but I, I could I couldn't do it. I yeah, just that couldn't. would be a hard decision for sure. But yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, there's another rabbit hole <laughs> there about the the uh, ends justifying the means, but uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we won't go down there. I was I got to go down there. I was thinking about this just yesterday <laughs> and the metaphysics. It, I never thought about it before. The metaphysics of why the the ends justifying the means means fallacy is a fallacy. It's because the the end ends up being an expression of the paradigm of the means. Yes. I yes. never saw that before. Yes. You can't uh, separate the means from the end, no, in other words. No. And the means is 90% of the time has hidden agenda to it that right. aren't specified directly in, in the means. So uh, the whole thing becomes an unwieldy, strategic, inauthentic thing uh, when you justify the means yeah. by the end. Yeah. It's all backwards. Right? And that's a, um, I, I, I don't know if I would have, 
I may have been seduced by that. I was going to say, like, it's, it's certainly a, that, that challenge would, might be such for a younger soul, but it seems to me like my, my soul is telling me, like, yeah, that ends justifying the means thing. Like, you just have to learn that from experience. It's, yeah. it's, the, the hidden yeah. motives eventually will come and bite you in the butt and sure. uh, in the end. So, um, yeah, but so... Was, I want to reveal, though, one part of my green that like to say no my inauthentic self at the uh -huh. time which was was quite uh 50 50 with me anyway at least uh he he liked that i said no oh sure because, because uh, uh i'm above such things uh mm -hmm. there was a, there was a a, a wound-based pride to that that mm -hmm. i i had to wrestle that down too which is why i gave the balancing scales yeah. a, an even thing because i could feel his ego about is being so nobly integrous that uh, yeah. I would not to do this, you know. It's like, well, oh, that, that's that's not the reason either. Yeah, you know? well, is that's a common a commonality uh, migraine has with yours is uh, uh, yeah. true, um, but uh, not for the right reasons necessarily, <laughs> yes. or in the right way, or in an appropriate right. way. That's a tough one yep. to wrangle. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So um, I, I wanted to uh, share, I've got a new sponsor, as I told you before we started recording, so we're going to get to that. But I, I think the one, one, the place to start is that I'm going to surprise you with a, a new article that I just came across. It was published uh, about seven or eight days ago. Uh, I saw this in the uh, Daily Telegraph first. It's also on Yahoo. And the headline Drum roll, please. It fits perfectly with our topic today, which is going to be, there's no such thing as a negative emotion. Suppressing negative thoughts could be good for your mental health, study suggests. Well, that's a perennial <laughs> headline for sure. Um, so they do scientific inquiry to prove this, I guess. Huh? Yes. Now, and I Googled a few different things and mostly, you know, about suppressing um, quote unquote negative thoughts and feelings. It's all the sort of um, Google zeitgeist. I wonder if anybody said that phrase before. The, the Google, <laughs> I sure haven't heard it. The yeah, Google yeah, zeitgeist it. is suppressing things is bad. But uh, here, here it is. It's a pretty short article. So I'm just, I mean, it's like 100 words. So I'm just going to cycle through this with some commentary uh, and jump in whenever you want. <laughs> okay. This is, and this is the article. This is the news article. This is the whole damn thing. That's a, British, uh, that's a British. That's uh, a British deal. Telegraph, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but the one I'm reading, because um, the Telegraph one was behind a paywall, so I found it for free on uh, Yahoo oh. Yahoo Life. Yeah. The common belief, I mean, just there, the common belief, just to start there, <laughs> the common belief. We don't oh. know, right? But we believe that suppressing mm -hmm. negative thoughts is bad for your mental health. Could be wrong, according to a new study. Researchers asked volunteers to block negative thoughts and found their mental health improved and the thoughts became less vivid. I mean, it, yeah, it's just the, the, the dullness of the knife that these words are cutting with. It's, it's oh pain, my God. painful. Yeah. Professor, should, should we comment on that, just on that Go sentence? ahead. Researchers asked volunteers to block negative thoughts. It says a little bit in, in the future what they mean by that, but found their mental health, which is not defined in this article, whatever that is, mental health, for which there is no universal agreement, it improved and the thoughts became less vivid, suggesting that that's a criterion for improvement. Yes. 
Well, there's just there's so many twists. Uh, this is a this can be a pretzel. Um, mm-hmm. the, the idea that we don't even use the word in identity for mental health, right. whatever that means, uh, uh, because what they would the category they're talking about mental health by suppressing improves mental health improves by suppressing negative thoughts and emotions um, uh, assumes that our primary aspect of consciousness is brain-based mentality as evidenced by mental health improved and the thoughts became less vivid so the the mental paradigm goes success it's less vivid that's great yes that's an improvement And, and not indirectly apparently improves the paradigm that we are mental i think therefore i am or i have a brain that mm-hmm. abstracts mentally that is what defines me as human being descartes uh, paradigm shatterer as opposed to i i am unworthy before god therefore i'm worthy before god that's what it replaced uh, of the dark ages mm-hmm. so the assumptions in those first few sentences and here's a good really good care uh, uh, what is it called carillon co- uh, call uh, clarion, clarion call, yeah, clarion mm-hmm. call. The how paradigms configure opinions. The paradigm, what they said in these few sentences, cut with a very dull knife of mentation. That's for sure. Um, is that me- we're mental beings first, and emotions are just sort of a sticky kind of um, a feeling-based thought that um, can really do us in uh, if they if we let them overcome us. You see. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Professor Michael Anderson from Cambridge University, right, prestigious university, said clinical treatment has accepted the idea that suppressing thoughts actually leads to them becoming more pervasive. Clinical treatment has accepted the idea that suppressing thoughts actually leads to them becoming more pervasive. Quote, this is gold. Quote, the whole point of psychotherapy is to dredge up these thoughts so one can deal with them and rob them of their power, he said demonstrating no clue about how psychotherapy actually works. <laughs> That's what he said. I get the headline <laughs> for a certain shallow level of understanding of psychotherapy. That's actually accurate, right. but not, not the real McCoy. Right, but to use the word dredge is so yes. obviously biased, like right. dredge. Yeah, right. so it can be dealt. What does dredging mean? How does yes. that work? And what yeah. is the dealing with? I mean, he clearly has a bias that it, he thinks it doesn't work. Yes, already, just with the word dredge, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moving on, when COVID-19 struck in 2020, he decided to interrogate this idea to see if he could help people through the pandemic. Working with Dr. So-and-so at the Medical Research Council, again, there's the paradigm, Medical Research Council, Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit, more paradigm. Yes. We're Absolutely. looking at psycho- psychology through brain science, not even psychotherapy, but through brain right. through neurology. Right. Uh, they re- they recruited 120 people across 16 countries. Decent, decent um, cross section of uh, of culture. Not very many people. Usually, you need like 1,500 people to have a decent study. So 120 people is not really very good. Mm-hmm. Um, to test whether it might be possible and beneficial for people to practice suppressing their fearful thoughts. In other words, behavioralism called, and they wanted all of their science from 100 years ago redone. <laughs> I don't know if behavioralism should uh, should want to uh, sue for patent infringement. Yes, on that. right. And Pavlov in his grave said, hey, that was my idea. 
<laughs> so this, but coming out of Cambridge, this is new and deep, right? Oh yes, yes, and you know to help people through COVID, so it's no totally noble. Uh, each participant oh, here, here's the science. Each participant was asked to think of a number of scenarios that could happen in the next two years. Twenty negative fears. Just a lot of things to come up with. Twenty negative fears. Twenty positive hopes, and thirty-six mundane and neutral events. Which yeah, you know, those are easy categories to. Uh, sure. <laughs> like, yeah. So totally arbitrary and subjective, but okay. The fears had to be current worries that had repeatedly intruded their thoughts. For each scenario, they provided a cue word that would remind them of the scenario and and a single word detail. Half of the participants were told to stare at one of their negative words, a negative word, for a few seconds, and acknowledge the fear, but then block any other thoughts. The other half of participants were given the same assignment, only with their neutral words. The exercise was repeated 12 times per day for three days. At the end of, of the experiment, the group that suppressed negative thoughts I was just thinking 12 times per day for three days. That's about how often most people have cigarettes, 12 times a day. <laughs> interesting frequency there. Interesting. And at the end of the experiment, the group that suppressed negative thoughts reported that those fears were less vivid and their mental health had improved compared with the group that suppressed neutral thoughts. The results held true three months after the experiment ended. Three months. Uh, what we found runs counter to the accepted narrative, said Professor Anderson, although more work will be needed to confirm the findings. It seems like it is possible and could even be potentially beneficial to actively suppress our fearful thoughts. End of story. Well, you know, uh, Joseph and I laugh here. That That's uh, all through our podcasts. But about 70% of the time, we, la we laugh because we, we, we it, it, we're crying on the inside. Yeah. It's not arrogance. I, I can imagine some people when, when we laugh and when you obviously show um, put a put a wonderfully identity um, spotlight on some of these phraseologies that expose the assumptions. Um, you know, and then we laugh. It, this is not arrogance. This is tragedy to us. But but yeah. there's a lightness that we've had to learn yeah. over the years. If we don't laugh a little, not in in in, in judgmental sneering, but mm -hmm. in oh my, when underneath our, our laughing is saying, oh my God, this is so the reason why people um, stay circling in their neurotic uh, dynamical um, uh, uh, awarenesses and treatments in this world. Uh, and this is a tragedy. Yeah. So that's what our laughing does. I just want to footnote that. Well, yeah. And I want to add, like, when I read this, I wasn't laughing. And when I read the news, I'm not laughing. I'm yes. hurting. I'm angry. I'm right. lonely. And so when we get together and talk about it, that's like the tip of the iceberg where I get to laugh yes. about it because all the other time. Um, yes. I, I don't cry about as, about it as much as I probably could or should, but it definitely, I'm not enjoying, I'm not enjoying it when I first right. get exposed to this stuff. It's like when you and I can talk, it, it helps aerate it. Aerate it. So that's a good, that's a it's good way. It's either that play. or kill myself. Like the, the, it really, I mean, <laughs> well, like, I know. <laughs> well, believe me, we, uh, the existential ramifications of encountering a world where you attained a certain meta space to see the tragedy uh, 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 of the assumptions that drive the, the, 
the the procedures that drive the results, the intended results. It's just you just you just uh, it's it's a tragedy. Yeah. So I'm still hung up here on <laughs> on this three word thing. Uh, improve my men- mental health. Improve. Yes. Wait, by what criteria? How does mental health improve? I, I need to decode that. My, my, even my brain wants to hear what, what they mean by improving mental health. You're in a better mood? Is, is that mental health? Right. I mean, I'm, surely they had like questionnaires that they were giving people that had implicit assumptions about what mental health is. But uh-huh. were they like really consciously aware and as far as I know, that's not written down anywhere. Like in the preface of the uh, the DSM, I don't know if okay. there's like a. And before we tell you the 547, uh, you know, mental disorders there are, let's tell, let's first establish what health is. I'm pretty sure that's not there. Yes. But it definitely is being able to get up in the morning, um, keep a job, um, not want to kill yourself. You know, these kinds of the obvious. Not ones. not not rub the corner Seven Eleven. Yes. Uh, Follow the laws, maintain relationships. Right. And and this is this is, again, where a rabbit, a paradigmatic rabbit hole just opens up automatically here is Mm -hmm. is um, from from identity's point of view, tragically and incisively Mm -hmm. uh, what what improved mental health usually means is a lack of a negative, not a presence of a positive. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see happiness or well or conscious well-being as humankind's uh, most um, uh, virulent drug. Yeah, uh, and then I've got some questions like, okay, so like um, Vincent Van Gogh, one of the most um, prolific and uh, um, well-sold painter of all time, um, uh, you know, incredibly successful post-mortem um was 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 he okay was he mentally healthy what about socrates who went around arguing with people and was put to death uh you know for for that or what about there the the christian hero jesus who said he was the son of god and um was uh you know invited all sorts of persecution like I, these people were not well-adjusted people you know the leaders oh, in our hey. world and they go by tesla uh, well, and just recently we talked about Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh, yeah. How, how emotively or how mentally healthy was he and how was his was his existential philosophy so compelling to him? He found no he had to kill himself, mm-hmm. you see. And, but but the point Steve fact, Jobs, who got fired from his own company because he was such a maverick and never yeah. until his dying day learned how to manage people without pissing them off. Was right. he healthy? Was he was he mentally sane? You know, is that okay? I, I gotta make. A, I, I gotta get hung up here before we go on. Okay. Uh, in point of his, his actual historicity, according to the paradigm of identity, which you can you don't have to believe at all. We don't want you to believe it anyway. Jesus never yes. claimed to be the Son of God. Right. Uh, that, that came a generation later by Paul, uh, aka Saul, who became Paul by getting knocked off his high horse. Um, if you look in the Akashica, you, <laughs> you will find that Saul, Paul, uh, was at the time horrifically uh, self-judgmentally gay. And that when he encountered the teachings of Jesus, he had an immediate cosmic event where he felt Jesus forgave him for his uh, quote-unquote 
unholy malady that he was holding secret because he knew he would be vilified uh, horribly in that culture of the time. So he felt so forgiving, forgiven for his internal unmanifested, but uh, only furtively of his uh, gay uh, uh, character that it became, it became a watershed moment for him. So Jesus had to be the son of God if God forgave gave him this feeling of forgiveness for his malady, which is not a malady at all. Yeah. Um, so that's just, but, you, you don't have to believe us, just check check the Akashica. But uh, I'm pretty sure homosexuality was still in the DSM until like the late 80s. So it was yeah. a malady until very recently. It was. We would never have considered it. No, no. On all of his, our historical narrative as a species, as any sort of non-cisgender is, um, is a malady to be healed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. I didn't mean to assert that that's what happened. That, that that's just how Christians you, hold it. That's Christians hold it, and exactly. not only was he <laughs> mentally stable, but he was the son of God. So, oh, God, yes. but if anybody says yeah. that now, they're crazy. <laughs> That's right. Even if you say you're a son of God, they might think you're crazy or a daughter. um, Yeah, yeah, that's right. Especially in in the religious context anyway. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you go to a therapist and say, I'm experiencing that I'm a son or daughter of God, I experience it all the time. They would check some boxes in the DSM. A lot of them would. The delusions of grandeur. Well, well, as I think we mentioned before, uh, there's um, in Jerusalem. There mm-hmm. is a psychiatric clinic, especially a rose, because people get to the the Bible land, uh-huh. and because they've been preconditioned by the Bible stories, they come across the supposed uh, Golgoth uh, um, uh, 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 location where Jesus was crucified, where I was there. It's not where it was in, in my Akashic uh, uh, awareness anyway, and, and they spontaneously have uh, a psychosis of I was Jesus, or I was Mother Virgin Mary, or I was Mary Magdalene, or I was uh, Herod or Pontius Pilate. And then they've got a clinic there to treat that for tourists who go there, who go not ecotourism, but religio tourism. I'm upset so, right now. Why is there not a reality TV show inside that clinic? Why, why, why is that, that not available on television right now? Oh, Joseph. <laughs> Only you would come up with that. I'd pay twenty dollars an episode for that. Oh my God! You're already writing. You're already writing the parameters in your head. I can feel it. Oh God! Would you imagine two 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 people two men claiming they were Jesus? uh, Oh yeah, fighting going having a fight in the cafeteria. Yeah, who gets the other's jello based on who's the real Jesus? That's the opening right there. Now, now, again, now we're laughing. This is not, this is a serious issue that people have this. And yet there's a comedy to it. And if you can't find the humor in the tragedy, uh, if you're a really deeply feeling being, which identity will help people become if they are not right now deeply feeling beings, you've got to have some comedy without judgment uh, uh, about how serious this is. So I just want to interject that again today because we laugh so much um, and yet it's not, it does not take away at all uh, the seriousness of this psychosis that that they're they're treating there in Jerusalem. Yeah. So anyway, what the reality you got me, I I just had to stop it because I started all of a sudden dominoes all started going down (laughs) and visualizing 
not scripting, but what the reality show would actually look like. I know, know yeah. It's, there would be some confidentiality issues. I mean, they could dramatize it. I mean, I think that'd be just brilliant television. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. So um, before oh. we go into um, the inverse of uh, what we were just talking about, uh, while the latest news is yet again, I mean, I think this goes without saying, but this is related to the glimmer thing we talked about a few episodes right. ago. To me, this is another data point in the doubling down of willfulness of just like, you know what? I feel I can feel the willfulness in the world going, you know what? Maybe suppressing our emotions is a good thing. Let's try harder with this like gasping one last attempt that hopefully right. is a foreshadowing of a final giving up. It's like the yes. death rattle of the toxic will in the world. Oh, it's a great way to put it. Um, because uh, the, the, the initial uh, assumption in identity's personhood dharma is that we are emotive beings first, mental beings, uh, uh, willful beings second, mental beings third, and physical beings fourth. That assumption alone changes the alchemy and the mathematics both of the entire way we look at human consciousness. It's an entirely new paradigm that has never been offered before with any sort of metaphysical alacrity. There's a man in, in France who uh, wrote a book, we, I Feel Therefore I Am, back in the 90s or uh, early 2000s, I think. Mm -hmm. There's no dharma associated with it. It's not part of a bigger spiritual paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there are those out there, and they're growing. They're seeing the importance of emotions. But seeing the importance of emotions is not the same thing as seeing that emotivity may, is the primary aspect of, of uh, our consciousness. So that's why when we're talking about mental health, and with emotions or emo bring down those emotionally toxic negative emotions, uh, you're suppressing a thing that's unrepressible in reality. And that is a great segue to talk about our latest sponsor. Okay. Um, <laughs> to, on the subject of trying to repress the un unrepressible, the irrepressible. If you do emotional body insolment, you've probably noticed that typical deodorants don't stand up to deep processing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> The entirely new paradigm of identity accesses soul-level emotivity, karma, deep karma, and energies that simply are off the radar of old paradigm deodorants. That's why for all-day groups and multi-day seminars, you need a soulfully authentic deodorant. A real deodorant, not covering how you don't want to smell, but one that supports you smelling how you essentially are. Oh, Joseph. Strategic world deodorants offer the absence of a negative, not the presence of a positive, authentic odor. To that right. degree, strategic deodorants recapitulate core woundings and keep you further from yourself. If wow. you do EBE, why would you wear a deodorant that works against the very reason you're sweating in the first place? To become <laughs> the real you. Oh, no. This is a metaphysical <laughs> treatise and an advertisement at the same time. Wait, I'm waiting to hear the name of the product. What's oh, the name here it comes. Well, then okay. you're right on time. For the first time in the history of hygiene, emotional body transodorant offers, <laughs> offers that there's no such thing as a negative odor and a radical emoto-personal hygienic breakthrough, a product that can lovingly receive so-called, quote-unquote, negative odors and help them transmute into their original, natural, and soulful state. As such, 
Emotional body transodorant doesn't make you smell good. It supports you smelling real. Oh, You've probably had a locked-in codependent relationship with deodorants <laughs> as you've either grabbed on to a certain smell and scented to dominate or attempted to stop sweating altogether in a smell to fit. Oh, no. <laughs> and if you've tried to ignore the issue, we offer that, as with all things human, nothing about body odor is transcendable. If you oh. think if you think that working hard means smelling bad, you may be caught in a need to smell loop or running an odor in service. Just because you're finally feeling what your parents really did to you, writhing in existential agony or navigating a piece of your own personal bardo doesn't mean you have to smell bad. If you do EBE, you need EBT, emotional body transodorant. Lead with your trailing edge. Don't smell like it. <laughs> Uh, you can see that uh, Joseph's had uh, lots of experience over the years with um, marketing, uh, <laughs> and uh, he just translated. If if you if you're taking a little while to digest or, or you're going, wait, what what? If that's a little too down line for you, he just made this amazing metaphor for the. Um, he he said bad odor is our negative emotions, yes. and not deodorize transodorize, uh, get above, use your mental insight to repress exactly what we were just uh, talking about with this article. So uh, EBT is, <laughs> is the new sponsor for the podcast, uh, another sponsor. Um, it, it, this is a metaphoric joke. Uh, we, it's not really for sale, but not it's yet. A, not yet, but it's a no. brilliant metaphor for exactly what we're talking about today in a humorous way. So that was the deconstruction, which kind of ruins it, but doesn't. No, not it at all. No, I think, it. It yeah, yeah, it. thank you. And um, yeah, and it's just good fun. So it's, uh, it, it's, I think it's an exaggeration to make a point because, yes. uh, yeah, if we were to apply the principles um, of emotion to deodorant, maybe that's what it would look like. A homeopath, a soulfully homeopathic yes. transmutative odor factor. There if only you that go. Were possible. Yeah. So what's what's yeah? How should we, we, all these beautiful rabbit holes that just open up immediately? Uh, well, you, me of, uh, you know what? You know what just hit me. There actually is in the um, I guess it's co cosmo cosmetology industry. Yeah, um, in the world of health and beauty products, there actually is a thing where they're um, using. Um, we have um, natural. Um, probiotics, skin probiotics that are supposed to live there. And the acetyl alcohols in so many products and soap kills them. And yeah. so like the reason cats and dogs and horses roll around in dirt is because that gives them those um, skin probiotics. And yes. so I've actually experimented with them. They make you smell completely different and kind of strong like onions in some ways. But the, we do have natural things. So there is some actual truth to this. That And it's cutting edge um, stuff that is being worked on to make people smell how they authentically smell rather than killing how we actually, act, actually smell and then layering it on top. So there is some truth to this. So let's, let's pick up on that. Um, yeah. That uh, when we say there's no such thing as a negative emotion, that's in a context that... Uh, if you see mentation or brain or transcendence as ways to not get ensnared in the pitfalls of actually experiencing negative emotions, 
you're from our point of view, you're applying an allopathic uh, a means to do so, because the 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 downline result of we're emotive beings first, willful beings second, and mental beings not even till third. You're using an oppositification thing, a deodorizer <laughs> of <laughs> of uh, of, um, uh, of uh, uh, odor as a as a malodor a malodorous uh, smell is a metaphor mm. for unpleasant emotions to feel. Uh, it, it, we we say in when it comes to soulful transmutation, all the treatment has to be homeopathic. It has to be homeopathic, as Joseph just mentioned, with uh, some of these probiotic stuff. Um, we, we're an emotionally homeopathic. Uh, a moto soulfully homo- homeopathic paradigm, and all three dharmas uh, of personhood, sagehood, and sainthood all employ allo- allo- um, homeopathy of emoto soulful emotions of healing, not allopathic overlays. So, if, so that's just a really important thing to take from our metaphor here. Yeah, and one of the things I wanted to share today is something that happened to me just yesterday. I, I had a pretty big trigger. Of, I mean, a it was a bunch of triggers that all happened in a short period of time, which is usually what it takes to really overwhelm me uh, or part of me. Um, and life cooperates um, beautifully to help coordinate all of these triggers to happen inside of 24 or 48 hours in order to help me learn something about myself. So that happened. And I there was a very strong um, control part of me not wanting to feel the more essential parts of the trigger and was getting angry or let's say ragey is, is better said, ragey, um, righteous, uh, controlling, just wanting it to all go away. And I was like kind of battling inside with it. And the uh, this control part of me has been um, in window, there have been windows of it becoming very innocent and a lot smaller and younger, um, which often happens. And there was a moment where there was enough me where it sort of shrank um, in in domination and in, in um, authority. And this young voice in me said something I've never heard anyone ask or certainly anyone in me ask. It said, what is hurt? What is it? With, with like a curiosity of like, help me understand what this is so that I can bear it so that I see you're wanting to really feel it. But yeah. like, why? W- what is it, and why will that help? Wow! That, wow! I see what you got, where you're heading here. Yeah, and I was, I was totally taken aback. Like, I, I, I couldn't even really quickly answer it. I, I, it, I didn't have a good answer at first, and I started to think about it. And I, it was late at night, and I needed to go to sleep. But I gave it some answers, and then this morning I tried to like write it out, like what actually is that to give this part. Um, the answer it, it wants because I could really feel it innocently was like, look, if you want to want me to not avoid this, I need to know what it is. Yeah. And, and, and it's important here that when Joseph is saying this, that this is not a head definition this part is asking for. He's already experiencing the the thing inside that we use the word hurt about. Uh, so it's not a mental thing. Give me a definition. It's it's an opposite. It's what is this thing that I'm already feeling? Yeah. And that's really important to get here in Joseph's presentation here is that, that this is not a head definition. Um, this is a help me 
feelingly understand yeah. why I should deepen my access to this. Tell me what it is. And so this is an agonal, an agonal kind of thing, not a flirty kind of mentalized thing. Just for yeah, the and it, what a great example of how parts of us can have different paradigms, right? Because I'm trying to do do the identity thing and feel all of my feelings, and here's this other part that's like, I'm wanting to do this other thing. I'm wanting to make it go away, and this yeah. really sucks. And I feel like I'm a victim of this situation. And you're wanting to like feel that more, and like he, we were just not on board. Yeah. And so that's why I was going in circles. Sure, where it couldn't resolve. Sure. And then when I finally mm-hmm. this morning, I you know it was a little bit of a challenge. Like, I mean, this is like the metaphysics of metaphysics. Like, what actually is hurt? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know I, where I went with it. I'm curious what you think. My 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 basic premise was because I'd never even tried to define it before. Where I went to, it was was relevant to the triggers. Was it's the natural state of human beings is we're supposed to feel our impact on each other when we're talking, when we're being, when we're relating, and when we when someone doesn't feel the impact they have on you while they're acting, it hurts. Yes, that, that produces hurt and. Um, that's uh, that's what happens in childhood, and because our parents are supposed to help us learn to digest that hurt, but instead right. they're doing most of the hurting. Then mm-hmm. we grow up and we think that hurt is bad and has to be kept away, so we don't want to feel it. But right. actually, it's by feeling that hurt and the rest we've talked about. But the the beginning was really important. Like, the, what actually is it a result of? I'd never yes. really thought about that, and I, so I used relationality as a context. And then this part was like. Okay, that makes sense. And then I was able to, to, to feel it, and it felt terrible. But suddenly, I felt like I was alive again after being <laughs> very depressed. This part was going basically between depression and like righteous rage, back and forth. And that was basically my childhood. Like that was how I coped as an early teen and a late teen. And so there it was, like, oh, this part doesn't want to feel hurt, so he's doing the depression or righteous rage thing, and that just goes in circles. And, and he needed to have like a compelling argument for why should I actually feel the essence of it? Yes. It was intense. What a beautiful, intensely difficult sorting out. You must have sifting different ways of feeling here to give him a a righteous answer, which he deserved, Mm. right? That's voice. And, you know, it's so, it's so important. Um, I would add only add one um, other dimension to it. Mm -hmm. so beautifully revealable there, Joseph, is um, for me, uh, an identity's um, emotive definition Mm -hmm. of hurt would be a contraction of being Mm -hmm. that occurs as a result of some threat to our natural being. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I had something, the contraction thing I had in there too, yeah. But a threat to, a contraction of our naturalness natural when it's natural. threatened mm-hmm. right now we have to define what natural means to make mm-hmm. that really stick but natural means emotively um and sold um so when we have something in the outside world and experience with an other of some kind uh that represents a threat to our natural emoto soulful well-being we call that hurt or mm-hmm. pain um mm-hmm. 
So um, that that's there's a an added on kind of thing that's one step away. It's an abstraction of what Joseph um, uh, tried to explain with his aspect, but just as compellingly appropriate to try to help this aspect. Well, uh, thanks digest. for saying that. Yeah, thanks for saying that because I, where I felt that go in is, um, which also was stuff I've been sorting out around this that is related to why this part asked the question, is because there's still this part is wrestling with um, he thinks there's something wrong with him that he's hurtable. Oh, yes, sure. So um, making it a natural response to a stimulus yeah. is yeah. Um, helps undermine that. He's still like, I don't know, I still feel like it should have been stronger. He's still sort of negotiating with that, but that helps. I appreciate that. Well, and you know, it reminds me, um, I'm doing more of this with people these days. Uh, EBE offers something called the emotive, the emotional congestive blueprint uh -huh. uh, that actually categorizes the sequence, uh, starting with hurt or pain, um, how our inauthentic self uh, is constructed. And I think, I think it just occurs to me just this moment, Joseph, that when we complete your our 18 uh, realizations here, I, I'd like to uh, offer an idea that we spend a two, maybe two um, uh, uh, podcasts on offering this blueprint and the justification for it as a, as a clinical aid to um, showing how e identities, personhood works and why it works the way it works. Yeah, I'd love so to. Put that, uh, uh, put that uh, in there. I think that'd be great to do. Okay, so let's go to the central path here. Uh, how do we justify there's no such thing as a negative emotion? Uh, so from the mouth of the mouth here, uh, <laughs> um, what this really means is that when we say there's no negative emotions, what we have been conditioned to call negative emotions are always red flags of pain screaming from the unconscious. So these are cries for help. Why would you negativize a cry for help? Every negative emotion that we have been taught, shame or depression or pain or the root of anger or anxiety that we find, have all these meds for, uh, 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 um, all these are meant to suppress cries for help. Now, I've not encountered, maybe you have, and this is an open question here, I've not encountered many psychological, much less spiritual paradigms that define negative emotions as cries for help. Because if they defined it that way, they would never use the moniker of negativity. These are siren calls from our suffering aspects of being. If you learn to repress them or are taught that it's healthy to, to, to repress them or suppress them, like Joseph's article uh, mm. claims, they're trying to suffocate cries of help, of please help me from the unconscious. You, this is, becomes a feelable truth, not something we want, identity wants well, you to believe in. You know, there's a really stark uh, reframing of the psychological definition of mental health it's uh, yeah. the absence of cries for help if you look at it that way yes That's this is a really the creepy way of, of framing it like if the cries are quieter right yes. the, remember the, in the article it said the thoughts are less vivid oh yes. the cries for help are quieter right but yes. what's the help that's called for 
Like, right. oh, the person in the burning buildings isn't screaming anymore. Great. Right. I guess everything's okay now. <laughs> like, oh God. So if that reframe that that reframe is a world changer, it's a paradigm shatterer. Mm-hmm. And and this is this is not an over exaggeration. Mm-hmm. The, the the power this has to change the the literally a re refabric the whole nature of consciousness that that causes us to maltreat our cries for help by labeling them negative in the first place so there's a reason that we have these negative emotions we have endured suffering we identity offers what the nature of the suffering is where it comes from, why it's innocent in some way of our first relational world of our parents, our family milk paradigm of origin, um, where these come from without having to blame parents but hold them responsible. These the negative emotions are uh, are the means to our healing. Mm-hmm. So to suppress them or numb them with medications or or, or with um, uh, 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 behaviors or attitudes mm-hmm. is a is a if I can use this word a, a, a sin against our natural emotosoulful nature. You know, it, it, it misses the mark, and that's what sin is. You know what 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 is mind-boggling to me is how we understand this principle in physicality and in um, mental study go ahead it's like you know it um if you get headaches all the time for example and they discover you know it you don't have to go to that sophisticated a professional to find out that your posture sucks yeah and it's Mm -hmm. like you know some doctors will say well you should take ibuprofen for that but if you go to the right kind of person like a chiropractor or an osteopath or even a physical therapist or an orthopedic doctor, any of those people are going to take a look at your posture and go, hey, I think I know why you have these headaches. Let's deal. Yeah. The, the headaches are just a cry for help, a symptom yeah. of the root problem. Or, you know, headache could also be if you're studying, you know, you're a student and, you know, if you study for four hours straight without taking a break, your head will start to hurt and your eyes will get blurry. You wouldn't like, you know, start doing lines of cocaine to, <laughs> to like power through it. You take a fucking break. Yes. Well, this is so clear. I love you brought this dimension of it up because um, you will hear over and over again. Thank God you that our body has pain. Yeah, because it's a signal something is off. Why is that not applied to emotional states? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the exact opposite. So you bring a beautiful other dimension here to the talk today. Uh, Thank God we get stomach aches. It tells us something is going on wrong. But in the emotional body, we're told to repress those cries of pain. Yeah, when literally in every other domain of human existence, pain is a cry for help that needs to be investigated but yes. when it comes to emotion, no, no, that's the exception. There's such a thing as negativity there. Make it go away. And this has this simple five, seven minute little aspect of our discussion here has the power to pull the plug on millions and millions of treatments going on this moment in planet Earth and undermine, unplug it and undermine it as a false narrative that helps stagnate, rewards us for controlling down these and numbing these uh, cries for help. 
And we and in point, you know, in, in the defense of that paradigm that wants to negativize emotive states, uh, uh, a psychiatrist many, many years ago, right as in the outset when I was bringing this forward, um, confronted me after. No, it, was, it wasn't afterward. It was inside a seminar, a talk. Mm-hmm. Let me get this straight. And I'm paraphrasing. The psychiatrist mm-hmm. said, are you saying you want to you want to help people de um, decompensate mm-hmm. and i said yes he goes but that's all that's going to do you you're going to you're going to unplug all of our coping mechanisms and our ad- adaptations those are healthy adaptations and compensations and we can't what are you going to are you creating do you have a, a, a huge billion dollar clinic hiding somewhere in the gobi desert that all of a sudden all these people are going to start decompensating mm-hmm. and going crazy and being psychotic mm-hmm. and, and i answered him very uh, um, was, you're the right quest that's the right question For and sure. my answer is yes mm-hmm. but because it's based in a picture that we're emotive beings first, we f- I found a way, uh, and that time I actually found a way, wasn't as good as what Bree has reinvented it to, mm-hmm. but found a way to safely help people decompensate over time to give them information about their unconscious. In other words, how many, how many ways are there out there, Joseph, where uh, at trying to get into the human unconscious? Psychedelics is one way, hypnosis, hypnosis is another one. We found a way to emotively help people access the unconscious by decompensating from the negativity we've been malconditioned to relate to un- uncomfortable emotives and uncomfortable feelings. You know, I, I hadn't thought of this before because like hypnosis accesses the unconscious, but it retains the split between the conscious and the unconscious, right? It goes around yeah, the conscious. goes around, right. Uh, um, hallucinogens can do the same, um, and because a lot of times you don't actually remember what happens because and then it stays in the unconscious. But as far as I can think of, the um, identity is the only thing that actually is supposed to and, and will cause, um, how do I even say this? It, it, it gives you an abiding ongoing experience of your unconscious emotion not a taste right not a moment not a segment of material but because it removes the it 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 deconstructs the reason why there's a split in the first place yes yes and nothing else even claims to do that i don't think no no uh, not that i know of uh you either you've, you've either got numbing agents uh physical numbing agents called uh drugs uh, attitudes, assumptions, and behaviors, um, mm-hmm. or transcend spiritual transcendence. Yeah, like um, in in plant medicine, they'll talk about releasing. Well, it's like you yes. experience it enough in order to release it, right. not sit in it for as long as you need to feel it so that it releases on its own. All of these negative emotions have wounds at their root mm-hmm. that will never be treatable until we stop labeling them as negative and numbing them, attituding over them, transcending them. If, if it's true, uh, and I've, we're going on 40 years now, I've not seen an exception yet, even though I look for it all the time of how this could be wrong. Um, if we are emotive beings first, if we are, then anything except seeing this, seeing them as cries for help 
will be numbing, transcending, attitudining, behavioring over them. And every step we do that, we re-de-authenticize, re-de-authenticize because they are cries for help from our deepest emotive authentic being. And so if we don't, uh, identity found a way, I found a way to begin the process of getting to the emotional body's unconscious through slow and loving and respectful um, decompensation. Mm -hmm. So um, in this sense, this is why when there's no such thing as a negative emotion, this doesn't mean we're going to turn everyone, it turns everyone into howling psychotics. <laughs> it doesn't do that. It does it in a measured, caring way that's been vastly improved over my original framework by my beloved um, in ways that um, will not make you ever again call any unpleasant emotion eventually cause you to never call them negative well again. and there's a preview for our next realization number 13 i oh, know 12 yes. um wow. that uh everything is real and some things are realer than others so right. what we're not saying is that all feelings ought to be indulged and celebrated for all time no. <laughs> at any time no, no. regardless no. of appropriateness and right. it's just that the the homeopathic approach means that there's a whatever the feeling is is met with a yes followed by an and and yeah. where does that come from and what's underneath that so um uh, brie is <laughs> brie is the patience of job with me and yes. my greens uh, righteousness and um and and uh, using truth as a sword uh she I, I don't know how she continues to listen to it when it comes up but uh you know like in my last session for example two days ago she uh, made space for for about 45 or 60 minutes until I finally got to what was underneath it, that the pain that was underneath it. Yeah. But so that there's no negative emotion doesn't mean that spending 90 minutes or 24 hours or whatever living in that righteous raginess is okay. Yeah. It just means it's not negative and right. it's a cry right. for help because that part of me uses Right. To, here's a, a good example of it. It's like, okay, well, that's a less vulnerable, a less real feeling than what we would say core emotivity is. So what purpose is this feeling? Because here we are again, Joseph is going off about how the world should be, and he's mm -hmm. not wrong, but mm -hmm. what's underneath that? Because yes. that's just going to yeah. go in circles. So yes, 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 and what's underneath that? And what's underneath yeah. that for me is this part is just goes... Uh, absolutely crazy um, and is, is in huge pain about the state of the world. Yes. That's what we had to get to. Oh, it's so important because until you got to that foundational root, um, you, we could never help this aspect of ourselves see how only our love of others and our love of the world mm -hmm. would cause us that equally deep suffering yeah and, and you can't feel the what's behind the depth of the suffering till you become emotively strong enough to deal with that suffering in small doses yeah. homeopathy is the perfect word for this because homeopathic treatment is always tinctures it's it's little bits that you put little globules uh, uh, and little vials. Uh, you take five or six of these little tiny little things. Um, it's tincture. It's, it's small amounts. We don't want we don't we don't want you to we don't rip away 
all your conscious control and all of a sudden uh, expose a raving psychotic like this poor doctor <laughs> assuming we would do um it, it, these are small tastes that are gradual it, it's not it's not a short-term path but as i had to um, work with someone i'm working with right now um i asked this person uh, or i actually I'll, I'll make a little story because I've, this has actually happened in other in other um uh, uh past years is that um would you ever go if you want to get enlightened would you ever go to a guru, uh, let's say an authentically enlightened teacher, a non-dual enlightened teacher, a Zen master, and would you say, uh, okay, I'd like to get into this stuff, but tell me how long it will take. Uh, uh, you would never ask uh, your guru to give you that definition. They would probably, uh, if you were one kind of, uh, of uh, non-dual guru, you would get shamed on the spot uh, for your dualistic uh, willfulness. Oh yeah, I mean, there's old Zen stories about that. Like oh, they say, uh, 10 years, like, well, what if I work really hard 20 years? What yeah. if I meditate <laughs> yeah. 16 hours, 30 years? There's an actual yeah. parable it, about that. Go on that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, when someone says, um, uh, recently working with someone, um, how long is this going to take for me to decompensate and get to my suffering? Um, and I want to tell a little short story here is uh, in my clumsy early days, um, uh, and this was um, with a person uh, who was um, uh, sexually abused. It was a woman in childhood. And uh, here's where, my, where I had to learn so many different dynamicals to work with. My third eye showed me who and how and how many times this occurred to her, which was buried in her unconscious. Mm -hmm. um, we were slowly getting to it. Uh, um, the, you have to be the most careful with with repressed memories uh, sure. because there's a whole other thing we could dedicate a whole podcast on on um, uh, repressed memories and how they're unreliable. And so many different paradigms see them as unreliable and inputable, inputable. Sure by the therapist, right? Yeah. So I wasn't that stupid uh, to go too fast with it, but um, uh, whatever I did, and I don't even remember, um, there was some moment where I helped her feel the ramification of one aspect of that um, sexual abuse, um, decompensated her coping mechanism slowly over a period of about a year, about a year into the work, and it was too soon. Uh -huh. uh, and she literally uh, went catatonic. Oh boy! Uh, now I'm not a psychiatrist. Um, I, I could, I certainly could call nine one one and say, "Let's get this person to the your local emergency room for uh, uh, um, an evaluation." Uh, but uh, here's where my third eye kicked in, and I saw where she went in her own soul field uh, that caused her to be catatonic. And here was a skill set where I was able to go into that it was like a long, narrow passageway to a cave. And I actually retrieved her out of that spot and brought her back. Mm -hmm. now, that's not I'm not bragging here. I'm saying that I had to really look at why I missed that mm -hmm. um, and how delicate and surgical the kinds of things Joseph and I are talking about now about de-repressing and allo uh, homeopathically giving us access through doorways to the unconscious is tricky fucking work. 
Yeah. And so you've got to be so heart, heartfully sensitive here. And sometimes this can be a really good gift in, in your sixth chakra to help. I, I spared her being uh, six months in a, or at least a 10 day paper at the psychiatric, fourth floor a psychiatric a clinic of a mm. hospital. Um, it only took about six hours, but it took me about six hours to get her back. That's a lot. And, and then she came back, and then we had to come, we had to leave, leave that whole track go for another six months before we were able to come back around again. So I want to want to stress to people when they hear your stories here, how Brie was so beautifully with you. Joseph has been in this work for on and off for what eighteen years? Yeah, uh, something like that. Yeah, something like that. In yeah. off and on, and so not only is there no way to say how long this will take, but. <laughs> The long, but as as the world evolves and we've got a new divinity since 2012, as we've been talking about a lot in other podcasts, this this is we're not saying it's going to take that long for everybody. What we're saying is um, there's a there's a a, a a curation of care that um, uh, an, a previously semi ensouled person and personhood knows how to work with people such that you don't blow the lid off too soon. And finally, to make closure to the story, why this uh, this admonition by the psychiatrist, I so loved how much he cared for people, didn't want to do that to people, because his whole career was making sure they could manage their uh, negative emotions by finding various and sundry ways to repress them. Yeah. Uh, because there's no, he, he said, yeah, I never was taught how to handle uh, uh, negative emotions except to repress them in therapy school uh, uh, or, or accept them and move on. Don't go deep into them, right? Which is what gurus do. And that's what I wanted to talk about next, but ah, um, transcendence, about, yeah. uh, about transcendence. But uh, anything in response to that little story there, Joseph? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful story. And um, there was something I wanted to say, which was, um, you know, the, there's not a month that goes by where I don't have a part that says, really, like, is this the best we can do? Make, maybe we should just walk away from identity and EBE. And it, it's, um, it, does, it does hurt. And to me, that makes me trust it more. Because oh, the, say why? Say the, why? Well, because you can't get in shape, you know, no pain, no gain. Like, you have to sweat. And mm -hmm. if you want to learn a new language, it's going to make your head hurt at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. like real growth always hurts a little bit. The, the, that's like the question just is the pain productive or not? Yeah. Um, and that makes me trust it more, not less. So to me, with, uh, uh, on, at the level of emotion, if you negativize emotion, you're signing up for a certain kind of pain. That yes. is... The, yes. the pain of the exhaustion that it takes repressing your emotion and the older you get, the harder so that much is. energy it takes, takes a ton of energy. so much energy. And this is why elderly people get dementia and start to lose their faculties because their protectors are just exhausted. Um, yes. It's not necessarily a natural state of an elderly person. So they just get so tired out. They can't do it anymore. So repressing emotion is like it's like digging a hole. And, um, you know, it, it like works to hide you from some things for a while, but then you have to start dealing with the things that are in the hole, yes. uh, the scorpions or whatever you find or the water mains and gas pipelines and, and all of that. So the, and also the, some things you're just not going to be able to repress. And, um, those things are going to like, if you take 
uh, antidepressants, some of those things will cause suicidal thoughts, interestingly enough. That's yes. the complete opposite of what's supposed to happen. Yeah. Yes. So it very clearly doesn't work. Um, and so it's, uh, whereas if you homeopathically approach emotion, there's the challenge of like what I had to go through the last 48 hours wrestling with, can I bear this pain? And that wasn't pleasant, but the, the dealing with the unpleasantness of that got me somewhere. Yes. You know, it's like, I, I have this metaphor I used to use. Um, you can go to, you can go to a gym. Yeah. You, you can go to a gym full of free weights and machines and whatnot, and you can move the free weights around like a mover, you know, drag the plates around, pick, use dollies to pick the machines up and move them around. You can do that. Right. And the next day you will feel like shit and you may very well have injured yourself. Or you can go to the gym and you can move the same weight using proper form and two days later you will be stronger. Oh, great. Right? You're moving great the weight. If the weight right. is the weight, how are you right. relating to it? Yes. Are you relating to it as like, this hurts, but I'm doing it in an intentional way that has a method to it. And I'm doing this with, a, you know, in a resonant way. Or am I playing right. victim and dragging this shit around because exactly. I feel like I have to? Those yeah. are basically our two options with emotion. It's one or the other. Great, great way of putting it. Um, if you heard me make a mess here, uh, <laughs> getting out of the sunlight. I've got, I've got the sunlight right. I mean, I could say, oh, "Wow, it looks isn't, great!" Isn't that interesting? Uh, yeah, but it's I'm, a Kundalini so uh, Christmas tree. <laughs> yes, thing. look at that <laughs> on the wall. Um, but the, I, I want to make a connect here because of how popular um, transcendence uh, uh -huh. is in the context, uh, a yeah. big context for this. First of all. Um, how neg no negative emotion actually obliterates the entire Eastern perspective that the self is an illusion. Uh, yeah. Now that's a that's a that's a claim uh, that can be verified for you. Uh, it's nothing less than that, because when you if you define us as emoto soulful beings first, or let's just say emotive first. We don't even have to add the soul metaphysically. Yeah. Emotive first. Uh, and 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 realize that accepting, but not paying a lot of attention to attention to uh, negative states of being on your way to acknowledging how the thought stream in meditation works, uh, where emotions are held as some sticky form of cognition. Uh, they're not seen as a separate domain. Emotivity in the Zen master way, in the, in the Zen paradigm, is equivalent to thoughts. Um, they're dualistic. Yeah. They're this thought versus that thought. They're polarized. So anything that's polarizable uh, is dualistic, and that's negative. So they don't say emotions are negative emotions. They say they relate to all dualisms streaming through your cognitive uh, being as um, uh, uh, creating a narrative of that there's a self having those thoughts, that that's an illusion, that we define ourselves by our thought streams. So they would also say, I think, therefore I am, but pejoratively. <laughs> yes. See? You see, uh, boy, look at the, the way the, the, how Descartes' uh, 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 reframing vaulted us out of the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. 
well, interestingly enough, Zen would say, yeah, I think therefore I am. That's um, the problem. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> not the, and Descartes thought, saw it as the solution. Yeah. Right? So if you're into the Zen thing or you've been doing a lot of meditating or you're on, you've made some, uh, ex, uh, some headway toward enlightenment, um, uh, you're not going to like what identity is going to offer because transcendence of negative emotions is wholesale rather than retail. It's retail in therapy. This thing will get you down. Whereas it's wholesale. No, anything that's dualistic and has an opposite is an is a is a is a is a, is a at, at best a um, an illusional way to holding on holding on to a false self that has these experiences mm -hmm. in the first place. Mm -hmm. So transcendence is as much of a drug. Even when they say, oh, we let ourselves feel, uh, my guru says, feel what you feel. Yeah, feel what you feel. Keep watching it until it, you don't feel it anymore. Um, yeah. that's, the, that's the crime of, against our nature that the Zen way, while it is based in a truth that there is some pre-dual kind of non-duality dimension to human uh, consciousness, doesn't render necessarily that the self is an illusion so mm -hmm. it's just an important thing because so many of the people who dial in here um, for podcasts are also on the eastern track and that those whole, those paradigms the hindu paradigm and the, and the buddhist paradigm they're they're similar but they have a couple of qualitative and quantitative differences but yeah i want to share again the um i was just thinking about this the last couple of days i think i've shared this before that you know i was did he be for 12 years? And then um, when you and I had our falling out, I went down the Zen path and the plant medicine path, and I got um, fairly non-dualized and fairly universalized. That was in 2019. I'm still digging out of that. I'm still digging out of that because I remember what doing emotional work was like before that. And yes. I, I was my, my, I didn't have a hard time embracing feeling what I felt it was heavily mentalized so i wasn't i had a hard time getting to the very bottom of it but and now i don't have the mentalization problem now i have this like existential willingness to engage with it problem yes exactly. and that's a whole fucking different problem and so i try to surrender to like okay well i guess i needed to do that but um it's sometimes it sucks because there is a transcendent transcended transcendent um a protector in me that's like yeah. why the hell are we dealing with all of this let's just go back to universal land we can do that right um right. and that's his out and i, I want to say one more thing about um the um be, because the transcendence thing is so uh, enculturated now yes you yes. don't have to be meditating uh or you know hanging around with a non-dual guru to subtly and maybe even unconsciously integrate letting go of difficult feelings um, anymore. That's just there. And I see it all the time. And what people don't get is when they feel something a little bit or just see it a little bit and then they let it go, they don't understand that what they just did is based on an assumption that there is no essential I. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's a the previous, tragedy. Of a previous that, that is not stressed Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, the ramifications of which is not stressed by non-dual gurus usually. And, and there's the ends and the means thing right there. So like I've met a person just recently who's doing some work on my house who 
um, I got to talking with him. He's kind of a dabbles in spirituality guy. And, uh, you know, he just exudes depression. And he's a good guy, noble guy, works hard, means well. But I can see that the depression is just totally visible. And I can, and after talking with him a bit, I could see he's not dealing with it. And he's been actively pursuing transcendent type stuff. And those two things usually go together because the, the, the depression wants to not exist. Yes. And then um, the, the paradigm will say, you know, overtly or covertly, yeah, you don't exist. Wouldn't right. that be great? Then you wouldn't have to feel all this pain. And yes. then the result of that transcendence is it, 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 it um, to use an Ani DeFranco line, it makes you look like a picture of yourself taken from far, far away. Yes. And that's where that's the end that transcendence leads people to. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more of that over the next few decades. It's uh, this is a, a really important um, <clears throat> invitation to explore that identity offers here, because what's at stake, what Joseph just did, if I can framework that he, he beautifully described the content of it. The framework is that if you get proficient in transcendental excesses, mm -hmm. um, it's going to become much harder, much harder to return to the personal that has been enculturated and malconditioned into you doesn't exist. And you taught that. I heard you say that for years, but apparently I needed to learn for myself. So I am here to confirm, even with the mental knowledge. And when I was doing it, I was trying to do as pure a form of Zen as I thought. I was aiming for the um, right. fear of not being, and, right. and I found it. I, it's not completely digested, I don't think, but I found it. Even with all of that identity framework, my unconscious still was able to grab a hold of it and use it, and it's still a problem. Um, it's I wouldn't say a problem. It's it's still a challenge I have to deal with, an extra challenge three and a half, four years later. And yeah. so I would not recommend to anybody um, that they now now I'm you. I'm the you that I heard speak ten years ago. Don't do it if you're like really called, but like do your emotional homework first, because otherwise it. You you give your um, emotional defenses a really powerful form of protection that's yeah. hard to work out. Transcendence is as much of a drug as Zoloft. Yeah, right? better. So, better actually, yeah, because it's actually based in some transcendental existential truth, mm -hmm. whereas Zoloft is at the retail level of repressing negative states. Um, uh, uh, not only has an emotional body uh, price to pay, it has a spiritual uh, body, our spiritual, our soulful prices to pay. So, and this is what people often ask me, um, you, you, you scream against uh, or you rail against transcendence as a drug and if don't, don't try to get enlightened or else you're going to uh, uh, cut off your access to your personal, you won't be able to heal till future lives. Um, how did you do it? Uh, <laughs> Uh, because I had a, an event, a, a non-dual event that changed my life uh, forever. Um, but the only reason I was able to do it was because I had a divine being uh, presence prior to the uh, non-dual event that changed my life that, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, it was a science project. Uh, 
Yeah. I wanted to test whether or not my sense of divine beings, all encompassing uh, effusive presence was simply a projection of being in the womb with my mother. Uh, as existential, some existential psychology teaches, no God, just projections from being in a swimming in a bath of love of your mama's belly. Um, and, and, and counter ironically, uh, it was that ability uh, that when divine being came back some uh, six, seven weeks after my event, um, I was able to then make the arduous, I'll say my version here very shortly. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, I'll just describe what it felt like. Uh, being enlightened in the non-dual Zen way is like standing naked on a mountain and coming back to the personal after that um, was like coming off that mountain, uh, layering yourself with layer after layer after layer of clothes and then digging a hole in the ground uh, six feet down, climbing in there and pulling the dirt over you, and then having to dig yourself out, just like mm -hmm. that, that metaphor. Literally, um, the event was well, when I was about 39, not, not quite 40. Um, I am 72. I can tell you it has taken me 32 years to dig myself out of that not only universalized divine being presence way to get back to my human feet um, emotively, but also to climb off the non-dual uh, pre-dual mountain. So it's taken me 32 years to get over the non-dual event. And I could only do it over that time with a paradigm of identity. Yeah. So I had to become a student of my own paradigm to get dig myself out of the transcendental whole yeah. So that's not a WH. That's an, just an <laughs> no. H, right? H, yeah. So I want to offer here as we close for today. Um, there's more to talk about. We'll we'll take a little bit of overhang because it links to the next realization, yeah, yeah. as I said. Um, that uh, it's old paradigm uh, to transcend your way to enlightenment. Um, it's over. Uh, it, be, it always started to get over in, in 2012, um, and it is really getting there every year that passes. It's old paradigm, just as much as the religions, uh, religious uh, sects, uh, the big five are, uh, big four basically, are old paradigm. So you're not at the cutting edge of consciousness evolution here if you're still uh, meditating on your way to enlightenment. Um, so it's not that there isn't a truth, like Joseph said, sure. there is, is an existential truth dimension, a pre-dual dimension to consciousness, but it's not, it doesn't involve the negation of the I. Yeah, and I would also add, like, it's, I wouldn't say, um, it certainly wasn't wrong that you did, it was absolutely necessary that you went down that path. Yeah, and right. um, it, it uh, I, I don't know if I can confidently say that um, it was absolutely necessary for me, but I did it. <laughs> I felt called to do it, so apparently it was necessary for me. Yes. Um, everybody has to do what they're called to do. Yes. I'm, f I'm, I am now at least semi-equipped to help people who fell into the transcendent hole themselves. Whereas before, yes. I couldn't do that at all, and actually, I'm working with people to do that. So that's something. Yeah. I am not nearly as stuck in my head as I was before. So apparently, that that was useful as well. But hey, everything has a price. So we're not saying that there's like a right and wrong about this. It's just no. like, be aware of the consequences of your actions. Exactly. There's, it had, there are three domains of emoto existential healing in identity. One of them is the personal. The other one is the sagely pre-dual. And the other one is our relationship with divinity. 
all of them are real. Mm -hmm. But in any moment, here's our segue, in any moment, one of them may be more importantly real uh, to focus on in a sequence. So as we say so often, and Joseph will say it again here for why you had to do that, you have to dead end. You have to take everything to its dead end. If you don't feel like you're dead ending and you're you're chasing enlightenment, keep at it, please. Uh, Just know that if you hear this message, and this is not a threat of karma, but I'm just <laughs> offering the possibility mm-hmm. that once you hear this and take it into some depth and go, whoa, some part of that feels right. But I'm going to get back to my guru now. Yeah. Uh, you will have more karma uh, to work yourself out of if you do uh, one day attain or semi-attain some some dimension of enlightenment because you're going to it's a it's a hole you're going to have to dig yourself out of not something to dissolve your eye into Mm -hmm. yeah so and i think for me um for me the the reason my awakening didn't complete because it was a washing machine for about 18 months i mean like every day it felt like somebody'd spun a wheel to find a new kind of consciousness it 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 freed me in many ways from the attachment to any particular state. I was completely lost control. I felt like I was on a different drug every day for about 12 hours. And then after about 18 months, it ground to a halt and Mm -hmm. kind of normalized. It stopped being chaos. Mm -hmm. And then I was left with the emotions that were not digested. And it was like, well, I guess I have to deal with those now. Um, So something divine sure. in me stopped it so yes. my own soul stopped it yes um it didn't complete and um and now the other thing i want to say which connects to that is um uh because ebe is a spiritual paradigm yes emotional processing will lead you to sagely yes. and saintly places uh, especially yes. if you have past life um attainments yes. which most old souls do Absolutely. So the good news is you don't have to sit and meditate for long hours. If you just heal your unconscious emotional wounds, it's very likely that you'll start to have spontaneous third eye experiences and divinity experiences. I did even before um, all of that happened. I started to see discarnate spirits after two or three years of doing EBE a long, long time ago. So Um, it is in one way uh, a catch-all or at least a foundation to do all all of the hoods. Oh, well said, sir. Well said. Okay. So we. I hope uh, today was um, informative and a little gut-wrenching um, <laughs> because we want to support gut-wrenching. Um, mm-hmm. Those cries for help are real please consider not numbing them with attention and one-offs. Please try not to, uh, um, try to not buy into as best as you can, all the coping mechanisms that, that, uh, and behaviors and attitudes and drugs that psychology, even psycho-spiritual teachings uh, in Diamond Heart and Waking Down do, um, they, they, there's no appreciation in any of those that we are emotive beings first, even though a lot of the other places which have great teachings for a certain level of consciousness and, and should be followed, the truth is they don't see emotions as primary 
they certainly see them as important to process, but everything changes with emotive primacy as the, the, uh, uh, the root dimension of consciousness. So if that, you don't buy that, God, stick with your doing. Don't listen to this uh, crazy podcast anymore if that's, <laughs> that's what you like. Yeah, so. we won't lose our sponsors if our listeners no. <laughs> goes down. They, they support us 100%. It. Yes, I want to see the packaging and the delivery uh, kind of thing of this uh, EDT. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you just get near it and resympathically absorb <laughs> oh, the see. substance. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Joseph. Thank you so much, Stace. Thank you, listeners. And um, tune in next time. We'll be talking about uh, number 12 in our realization list that everything is real and some things are realer than others. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey.